Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast, critical discussions in critical times. Here's your host, Bill Kelly. And welcome. This is the Bill Kelly Podcast, critical discussions for critical times. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Uh, Today, we want to focus on what's happening within our own borders. And and God knows there's a lot to talk about in in the Middle East and and the the concerns about uh, what's going on, of course, with the uh, the war uh, with Ukraine and Russia and uh, Canada's commitment to that. But in the meantime, uh, we need to get our own house in order here. And we're hearing a lot about that over the last couple of weeks uh, with some of the things that are happening at the provincial level and the federal level. And to talk about that, uh, we are so pleased to welcome to the podcast uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull is the professor, chair, public and international affairs department, uh, and uh, the faculty of management at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks for having me, Bill. It's always good to be here. I, I am not a fatalist, and I'm not one who likes to to deal in hyperbole, uh, but I read an editorial from, uh, I can't remember which one of the newspapers it was, one of the ones actually in the East Coast, uh, that said we could be witnessing the demise of Canada, uh, and, and uh, which sounds a little bizarre, maybe a little extreme. But when you look at some of the things that are happening individually, uh, the, 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 the legislation that was passed in New Brunswick about pronouns, for instance, uh, and then, of course, you've got Scott Moe with his legislation similar to that. Uh, and then there's Danielle Smith. We could spend an hour and a half talking with what's going on in Alberta right now. Uh, and first of all, to do with the energy policies. And now uh, word this morning is that uh, leaked documents indicate uh, that they are talking about and probably planning to deconstruct our health care system and the delivery of that health care system. I guess the overall question a lot of people are probably asking right now, Laurie, are we still a country or just a collection of, of, of 10 different governments that are trying to get their own way? Yeah, um, I think that's a very good question. I can I think we can see that the premiers are pulling on the threads that tie us together. And I think part of that is that we have, they have political reasons for doing so. Some of it is they have true values-based reasons for doing so and that they don't see the world the same way at all. And I think that for a federation, there has to be like elasticity. There has to be some times where things aren't going well and we are pulling on that, but yet the ties that bind us are still strong enough that we don't actually rip the thing apart. And I think we're seeing some really, really trying times at this point where there's a zero summism that's, that's part of the conversation. And like the, like to me, the pension issue from Alberta is the most clear example of a government saying, well, we've done the math and we're better off alone. And if we are reducible to that, right? If we're just kind of like the same as, as you, you make this, the, you know, the, this vision of the, these 10 provinces in different governments, different, different entities. If we boil ourselves down to a series of transactions where, you know, are we better off together? Are we better off apart? And we start doing that math in a way that's really transactional, mm-hmm. then that's not a country. That's, that's, you know, a, a kind of relationship of convenience that is subject to, I think, constant questions about whether it's working well. And, and we see this. And, and, you know, the Alberta situation is not new, of course. I mean, they've been talking about splitting from Canada for a long, long time. Uh, we all know about uh, how Trudeau Sr. was viewed by the Albertans with his national energy plan. So that's there. And there's been some rumblings about B.C. But, but I always got the impression that, yeah, there was that element that had those feelings. But at the same time, the general consensus within the population in those provinces is, yeah, that sucks. And, yeah, that sucks. But you know what? We're better off in than out. Uh, as a matter of fact, even the people of Quebec came to that decision some years ago with that last referendum. 
Uh, and and I'm not suggesting that we've, we're going downhill without any brakes on here, but it just seems as if what the premiers are doing now is they're looking at a government and say, these guys are weak and vulnerable, and we're going after them right now. Uh, not just Trudeau himself, but I mean, all of these other elements of this right now. And, I, and, I, and they just met, of course, uh, the East Coast uh, in Halifax, as a matter of fact, uh, an area from which you, I know you are very familiar. Uh, and, and as a result, they, they came out with a, basically a list of demands. Uh, they didn't even get around to healthcare, which is usually the number one issue for them because they had so many other things on the plate. Uh, where are we going with this? I think there are different reasons we can look at for how we got here in the first place. I think COVID is a, is one thing that people are are kind of doing a bit of a look back to and saying, is this was that a moment where things actually started to really break down? Because a few things happened. <clears throat> um, everybody being put inside. I think all, like all of a sudden, everyone having to go inside, social distance, you can't go to work, you can't go out, you can't see your friends, you can't see your family, depending on where we were in the COVID cycle, the government was telling you how to live your daily life and you were being isolated from people. So for some people that meant financial ruin, for some people that meant financial stress, for some people that meant this is dangerous, but I still have to work because I'm on the front line. So everybody else is home and being safe. And I actually can't do that if I want to make my living. Uh, there are people who were better off because they could save the cost of driving and parking to work, but they didn't lose their salary. Like it created, I think, <clears throat> and then it exacerbated tensions that were already there. On top of that, the fact that we were all isolated away from one another for long periods of time, I think had a significant impact on social cohesion. And the sense of being empathetic toward people and thinking about how things affect your neighbor. We all felt a weird sense of isolation for a period of time that we weren't really prepared for when it first happened. And also, there was obviously a backlash to the, the types of measures that the government was using. At first, it seemed like we're all in this together. We understand why mm. we're social distancing. But then when there were vaccine mandates and mask mandates, clearly, a, you know, a a lot of people had a problem with how the government was wielding its power at that point. And so I think a lot of the things that we are seeing now are linked back to a time where it was like just it was a moment where things really started to unravel. And it was long enough that these types of tensions took hold. Now we can see the effects of disinformation. A lot of uh, there's a lot of opinions out there that are not true and are not based on truth but they're able to continue to, to make traction and have effect on people. We can also link that back to a certain extent anyway, to how much time people spent online during COVID. Canadians mm, spent yeah. a ton of time absorbing online information, misinformation, disinformation during COVID. And that is linked to definitely a proliferation of misinformation and those kinds of attitudes having effect on parliament and sorry, on politics, not just parliament. We now seem to be, in, you know, we're organizing ourselves into groups of like-minded people. There's mm. not places, even like, we, we need more of this, Bill. We need more of people like having, we're having a conversation. I might not agree with you. You might not agree with me, but we both feel safe having a conversation. We're seeing less of that now. People are gathering with people who they know agree with them. And then developing a sense of, of you know, other about anybody who doesn't agree with them. And then there's a demonization. And so I think a lot of that. Be, you know, as politicians are partly responsible for all this crap, and they're also seeing a way to profit from it, because a lot of this is like kind of dog whistle. We're going to pluck this thread because it's going to make that group of people more angry at our opponents. So let's see how far we can go with that. And you see trial balloons that are dangerous, but can have effect on the political debate and can encourage a kind of wedge driven politics. And I think politicians on all sides are, are playing those kinds of games. 
the fact that we've devolved into this this sense of tribalism, I guess, is going to make it that much more difficult for us to try to come together on major issues. And we have some major issues right now. It's almost as if, as you say, after a couple of years of being isolated and spending a whole lot and a lot, probably more time than we should, uh, searching the internet and, and coming up with some of these ideas, uh, uh, it's as soon as we could, okay, you can come out now. And, and we just, it was like, we're going to storm the Bastille now. You know, I'm so pissed off about all the stuff I've read and now I've, I've got to take it out. And that's how we got the convoy. Uh, and that mindset's still there. I mean, every, every weekend when I go from Ancaster up to our place in Blue Mountain, uh, there's a place, uh, there's this guy's house. It's in Mansfield, Ontario, and it's right there on the road. And it's got the F. Trudeau stuff and, oh, I want my freedoms and another rally at uh, some local barn or something. Uh, just as strong and just as, as, as vile as it was three and a half years ago. Uh, people are not letting go of this. As I, if anything, it seems to have drawn these people together now and, and they, they see strength in numbers. Oh, 100%. And like, I think that now, like living in Ottawa, I think we probably have better uh, protocols in place if, if something like a convoy ever happened again. I think we'd manage it better. But um, the, as you say, like the sentiment, the division, the frustration, the anger, the fear, all of that is still there. And I think that's a big reason why, uh, to me, the Liberals' fortunes will not be reversed. Like sometimes people are saying, you know, is there anything the Liberals can do? And what have they chosen mm-hmm. a leader? I'm like, Maybe somebody else would stop the bleeding a little, but not really. I think this a lot of this is going to bundle up into and then kind of cascade with what's typical voter fatigue anyway when a government is this old. And then it's turning into we want somebody else. There's so many people who want to see a change in government because they are tired of the way things are and they want a breath of fresh air. But even if you watch, if you go through the pain of watching question period, um, the back and forth, like civility is gone. It is out the window. Um, it's wor- like it's worse in there than it used to be. And, you know, it's not like it, there was a wonderful golden age where they were all civil to one another in a question period. But people used to be able to talk. And now it is just like painful to have to listen to. And I, I don't know what that means in terms of the future of these sorts of institutions. But to get back to your original question about, you know, is the country coming apart? I think part of that is a lack of, of um, trust and engagement with public institutions. It's not just the people. It's that um, p- more people are asking whether these sorts of institutions work. And that's not a bad question. It's good for us to be accountable about how our institutions work, whether they're not working, what we can do better. But I think when there's, see- there's a breakdown in the consensus around the rules of the game, then we see really dangerous stuff in politics, like people denying the results of elections. The concern here, of course, and you just touched on it a second ago, that that I find very bothersome is, as you say, politicians that play into this. I I don't believe for a second that a lot of the the big players on the scene these days, provincially and federally in this country, uh, are are wholly buying into this. But they see an opportunity here to score some political points with a pissed off population. Uh, How's that for alliteration? Uh, And and because of that... uh, those people that are angry about this and disenchanted with this buy into this, and they're, they're, those are their leaders. I, I don't know really what Pierre Poilievre thinks about almost anything, because all he says is that's Justin Trudeau's fault. I really don't know if Scott Moe has a problem with pronouns, but he certainly you know pushes this yeah. because there's a, a, a part of the population right now that is pleased that stuff like this is happening. And then Danielle Smith, well, if the people in Alberta that are complaining about some of the initiatives, I said you, you knew what you were buying. I, I know you didn't like the previous government, but you knew what she was all about. She didn't hide anything. 
uh, yet now they're upset about the way things are going right now. So uh, the biggest concern that I'm seeing right now is that, okay, we're angry and we're going to do something about it. Uh, but do you really understand what the alternative is or is there an alternative and what are the consequences of that alternative? I, I think you mentioned to us in a previous conversation, if there is a change in government in the next federal election, whenever that might be, uh, you got to pretty much assume that they're going to be in power for about 10 years. That seems to be the way things go in this country these days. You get a majority, uh, maybe another majority, maybe a couple of minorities like Stephen Harper and others, uh, but they're going to be around for a long time, especially because if past history is any indication, uh, it doesn't take the liberals a, a short period of time, but a long period of time to understand that, hey, we screwed up and we've got to kind of reinvent ourselves. It took them a long time to do that. And I'm still, I'm not sure they still got it right. So, you know, when you're angry, it's, it's, isn't that the old thing that your parents used to say? Don't make decisions when you're angry because you could live to regret it. We're angry. This whole country is angry right now. And that's why I think a lot of people are saying, so where are we going? What's this going to, what's this going to bring us? Oh, yeah, I, I agree 100% because, yeah, you can make a decision when you're angry, but, you know, a short time later, when you when you calm down and then you look at what you're stuck with, you might not, it might not look as good. And I mean, I think we are at a point where um, even if they, even if we didn't see anger build up as much as we have, I think this government is on its third term by its own mm -hmm. design because it went to early election. This, he's been leader for for over 10 years now. The government's eight years old. Like people are going to get itchy around now anyway. But I think if we didn't see the kind of anger that we do now, it would be possible, hypothetically, that the conservatives wouldn't be in like majority territory. Like from the liberals perspective, if things weren't as bad as they are now, it's possible that a liberal NDP partnership could actually carry into another minority. And I've always sort of wondered whether that was the point of that deal in the first place is to try to condition some acceptance and normalization around a partnership that makes up the majority of seats, whether it's a coalition or not. And that way, hypothetically, even if we had an election in a year's time and the conservatives got the most seats, but not the majority, would a liberal NDP arrangement, whether coalition or not, be able to keep going? That was the question to me for a little while. Now I'm like, okay, well, the NDP isn't making any traction at all. Somehow, even though every, like the liberals numbers get worse by the day, the NDP are harnessing none of this. And so they're still stuck, you know, quite a bit less than 20% of the national vote. And so they don't look like they're going to pick up anything in the next election. So I'm not see like, you know, they're not, it doesn't look to me like they're going to improve. So they don't have a big incentive to go to election. And, you know, it, it just looks like it could be really bad for the liberals and people are, and as you say, it takes them a long time to rebuild. I think this could be, you know, depending on if any of these measures like the carbon tax exemption and things like that are going to save them in, in any case, what if it's a real bomb for the liberals and yeah. they're like picking up the pieces big time. And because he was in a circumstance, Trudeau, where he inherited the party with 34 seats in the house, the worst showing they ever had. And he rebuilt the thing and very much in his own image. And so if it blows down, then I think it's across the board, right? Like it's not like when parties used to change hands decades ago and the lead, there was a sense of transition from one leader to the next and yeah. it's different now. It's like, bam, the whole thing is right down to the studs and you got to start again. And so I think that, yeah, if the conservatives come in, uh, you know, it would, history would suggest they will get ter two terms like everybody else. And so what do they do beyond the anger, I wonder? Like, what are their actual policies going to look like? And, and he's being asked questions now about where are you on, like, 
previous uh, environmental yeah, commitments. But that he are, deflects all of them. He still doesn't yes. answer them. And, no. and by the way, just to, you know, to try to, well, we went through this a number of years ago when, when the country was tired of Stephen Harper for a variety of reasons. Uh, and we elected a guy who, as you say, came from third place with only 34 seats uh, under the guise of sunny ways. Uh, in other words, I'm going to make things better. You didn't, not, you didn't say how he's going to make things better. And we bought into that because we were so angry and, and so apprehensive about what was going to happen. Are we in the same position again? Hmm. Yeah, it hasn't been sunny for a while. Um, I don't know. <laughs> like, it's, I think there is definitely a sense, even for people who had been supportive, maybe really among the people who had been supportive of Trudeau, that there are things that the government had promised that didn't come true. That's the case with any government. But I think when it comes to this climate thing, for example, and this, his attachment to the carbon tax, people are asking, are there going to be more exemptions? He's saying, absolutely not. Because I think this is a really key piece of the Trudeau legacy. I think, like, to me, he's he's had a an opportunity in, these, in the last couple of years. Like, does he want to use this time to say, yeah, I'm probably going to lose the next election. So since that's true, I'm going to do what I actually want. And if people hate me for that, I don't really care. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do the, I'm going to cement the legacy pieces because I'm prime minister and that's what I'm here to do. And when I leave, I can leave with, a, you know, a sense that I made the difference I wanted to make. Now it seems like he's, yeah, but the Atlantic Canadian MPs got really ticked off and they pushed him into this tax carbon tax exemption. That's blowing up in their face because it just looks like they're selling out on something that means a lot to them and they're not doing so in a way that's equitable. And so I don't know, like it's, it, it could be a pretty big implosion for them possibly. Like, I mean, I'm not a pollster, but it doesn't look like anything's getting any, any better for them. But it's, it's putting the leaders in a rather precarious position. Trudeau, as, as you've just outlined, uh, has some challenges and some decisions to make. We pretty much know what Polyev is going to be. It's anti-liberal, anti-Trudeau. Uh, but here we were just a couple of months ago talking about uh, alliances. I mean, the motion about extending that, that rebate, the, the carbon tax rebate, when you've got the NDP and conservatives voting on the same issue and voting together on it uh, against the, the government. I mean, this is like, wow, what, what you know, universe are we in now? where something like that could happen. But Jagmeet Singh has been rather nuanced in, in that, certainly, because that doesn't, you know, his supporting that, of course, makes all kinds of sense because that's been one of the party platforms all along. Mm -hmm. But Singh did say that he could blow up the agreement, but he didn't say he was going to bring down the government. He did yeah. say that we would support legislation on a one-off basis. So, in other words, I don't think he has any idea or any inclination right now to blow this thing up and have a non-confidence motion. Well, probably I would love that. That'd be the best Christmas guess you could ever get. But I get the thing that Singh is, is really being rather uh, tricky here about how he's phrasing this. In other words, we're not going to bring the government down. We're just not going to say that you we're on your side on all issues right now. So uh, I, I don't know if that makes it more complicated or, or where we are now. I don't think it matters. I really don't. Like, I mean, I don't, th I, I think for one thing that the, the NDP and the conservatives supporting that, that motion, obviously conservatives supported it was theirs. Um, mm -hmm. to extend the, the rebate on the, or sorry, to extend the exemption. I thought that was smart politics on both their parts. Um, but I think that this deal has never helped the NDP at all. I think no. that uh, it has always been the case that the, the NDP, um, I think they probably could have gotten more from the government if they had positioned their support as being on a case-by-case -case basis and maintaining their independence. I don't see what they've ever gotten out of this particularly given the fact that 
they end up having to be on the defensive for why they're supporting the government, as opposed to saying we're an opposition party and our, our support depends on this and making, putting themselves in the driver's seat as the kingmaker. They gave that up. And instead they're, they're now expected to support the government because they put themselves in this position and whether they, they are going to keep going is sort of like, well, they're stuck with this. Like it's, it's all, you know, like, and if they move away from it, then it's all like, well, you're going to go to election and what's that going to do for you? And like, ugh, I don't know. I just don't, I don't feel like this worked out for them. I feel like this is, they gave away what leverage they had. And now the expectation is that they're just going to support the government. And uh, yeah. I, I, one other thing I get at, because you know, we're talking about what's going to happen next steps. Uh, I have a propensity for quoting Shakespeare. I love the Shakespeare work. Uh, but I guess to, to paraphrase uh, the Bard, uh, who's going to be the Brutus here? We know there's internal dissension within the Liberal caucus these days. Uh, we know that there's at least a handful of people that want to be the next leader. Uh, a couple of them got smacked down like Anita and Ond and others by being demoted in cabinet positions. Uh, but that hasn't changed. And as the numbers continue to slide, uh, I don't know that too many people are going to jump ship. Uh, but they're going to try to push the captain out uh, and see if they can take over the ship. And, and you know, we know most of those names right now, but does anybody actually uh, have the strength or the, the inclination to say, I'm taking the, the, the leader on? See, that's interesting about his style of leadership. He It seems he doesn't trust very many people and he keeps this, he keeps people around him that he, who he knows. And so people like Mark Miller, Melanie Jolie, Artis Chagger, I'm just, that's just three names off the top of my head. They're people who he's known for years, went to McGill. Well, Dominic LeBlanc is in that category, Dominic too. Dominic LeBlanc's been his close friend for they years. They grew up together. Yeah, exactly. Um, people like uh, Christian Freeland, who was a star candidate for him, and he brought her in. Like, all this relationship-based stuff, which makes it very difficult for people like any of the people I just named to say, to be that Brutus, right? Because they're, they're stabbing their friend, which is much harder than somebody like you know, who's more distant from the leader, who's just been an MP and who says, you know what, I'm going to take this because I'm going to take a run at this because this guy's tanking. Um, we kind of heard some noise from Mark Carney last week. I don't know if that was just him saying, you know, throwing out his opinions for what it's worth kind of thing and taking a shot at career politicians because most of the leaders now are career politicians and he's not. I don't, I don't know. Right. Like, but I think like f within the party, sorry, within the caucus right now, I don't see it happening. I think it would have to be like Trudeau tapping somebody on the shoulder and saying, I don't want to do this. Can you take over? Otherwise, I think it would be a bloodbath. It'd be ultimately worse for the party than anything else. Is Carney serious? I don't know. Or if he's just sort of making waves to, because he doesn't want to go and lose. Mark Carney is yeah. a, you know, like. Well, and let's, let's think about that. Yeah. Let's talk about, the, I mean, we could. I, I want to wrap up in a second here, but I mean, Carney, as soon as I heard that, and, and he, you're right, he's been kicking the tires for a while, yeah. but can the liberals actually go down that road? You know, let's get a guy from outside who doesn't have any political experience. Says, yeah, that worked with Ignatius. Yeah, let's do that again. Ooh. I mean, I mean you know, don't, do they not learn from their mistakes? Well, that's it, right? Like in some ways, I think, um, you know, someone who's, who Mark Carney's a smart man. He's been, you know. So is Ignatiev. So is Ignatiev. True. Yeah. And in some ways, I could see Carney coming in and put on, putting on a clinic with every kind of thing that Polyev ever, every inflammatory thing that Polyev says about the economy. Carney could knock that out of the park in his sleep. However, on the other hand, um, Carney in some ways is exactly who Polyev wants to run against. Here is yeah. a member of the elite, never been elected, 
never been accountable to you, doesn't care what happens to you, rich guy, blah, blah, blah. And then he'll use every picture of Carney with some other rich person and it'll just be a disaster, right? So in some ways, you know, the, I think the conservatives would be quite happy to see that outcome. On the other hand, I can't, like, if the, if the writing's on the wall and the liberals are going to have to basically, you know, do some sort of miracles, loaves and fishes here to be able to win the next election, I can't see why somebody like Mark Carney would say, yeah, I'd love to take that on when I've got about a thousand other things I could do all of which would be far more lucrative and far easier on my head. Yeah, uh, as you say, there's got to be a healing period and when the election is, is finally over with, whatever that's going to be. Uh, Laurie, as always, great to get your insight into this. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, too. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. And uh, that's it for this edition of the Bill Kelly Podcast. Thanks for listening, and uh, thanks for subscribing, too, by the way. As always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. You can reach us on YouTube, Facebook, uh, Twitter, or X, if you prefer. Instagram, or you can get us on email at this is Bill Kelly, or subscribe to the Substack too. We'll get all the information for you too. I leave you with the words of Winston Churchill, a great parliamentarian, since that's what we were talking about today. Courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. Courage is also what it takes to sit down and listen. Until next time, I'm Bill Kelly. The podcast was brought to you by Rebecca Wizens and her team at Wizens Law. Rebecca Wizens is a 20-time winner of the Hamilton Reader's Choice Awards for their exceptional client care and legal practice specializing in personal injury, car accidents, accidental falls, and Wilson Estates. Now, if you or a loved one have been seriously injured, or if you want to make sure that your family is taken care of for the future with a will and powers of attorney, call Rebecca Wizens, 905-522-1102 for a free consultation. When life happens, you can rely on Rebecca Wizens and Wizens Law. And trust me, Rebecca is my wife, and I don't know what I'd do without her. That's Wizens Law, 905-522-1102 for a free consultation. Subscribe to my Substack for timely news updates and commentary straight to your inbox. Let's keep the conversation going. I'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Let me know what you think we should be talking about next by contacting me through my website at www.billkelly.co. Thanks for tuning in. This is Bill Kelly. Till next time, you take care.